Hello friends, my name is Steve and we're here today to talk about the Warrior Prophet, chapter four, chapters 14 through 17. I'm here with the crew, Daniel and Katerina. Uh, Daniel, do you want to give us a quick introduction? Hi, I'm Daniel. I've read these books a couple times now. It's been fun slowly rereading them and breaking it down with Katerina and Steve. And hey, I'm Katerina, and this is my second time reading through The Warrior Prophet. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I thought I mastered the introductions already, man. <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of mastering introductions, I always forget to mention this my first time reading this one. Um, so it's my first first time. It's Katerina's second time, and Daniel, you've, he's read it like 17 times. So... Since I mean, you should your... just, just say that at the beginning of every every episode. Yeah. It would spur us a lot of trouble. Yeah, I always forget that. Since it's your first time, what did you think? Well, I think a lot happened. Um, you know, I, I, you this one reads differently than the first one, this book. I kind of feel like it, it reads, um, it's not as dense. It doesn't, I shouldn't say that, it doesn't feel as dense. But when you go back and you, like when I went back and wrote notes for it and kind of getting my thoughts together for this conversation, I have like a page full of things that happen and references for page numbers. So it's almost like, um, it doesn't feel like a lot, but it's, it's a lot. It's just easier because I think we're aware of factions and characters and some motivations. So I think it makes it easier to kind of um, absorb it than the first book did for me. Yeah, and I think there is also a lot more action in this book. Mm -hmm. So you get some moments of relief where you don't have to think too hard between the parts where you actually do. Uh, so I think that helps. I think that helps uh, a bit to have a few battles in between. Yeah, breaks it up. So what do you think, Daniel? You've read it. Uh, what, what's your, do you, do you have a different... Um perspective on it this time than you did before that you remember? Mm, to some extent. It's been a while since I've read them, so it's feels sort of new again. Like, I know what happens, but I don't know when it all happens, so well, I kind of do, but now that I know mostly what happens, just some of the parts stick out to me a lot more than other parts, and it's oftentimes not the battle scenes. Hmm. It's the little weird in-between moments that tell us perspectives and Sarsalus perspectives. We even had a, a Scarus perspective, didn't we, in this chapter? in these chapters so those little things have been fun to go back and catch up on my friend just sent me a link to the history of Irwa it's like a 180 page B document that hmm. I'm gonna have to go read now I guess <laughs> is it something like is an uh, official guidebook like is it something that was written by Baker or is it like no, a fan mate? History I think book. This was like a ten-year-long fan-made history book. 
Wow. It looked pretty cool, the little bit I browsed through before I got on. So I'll share a link, but it, it'll be like after you read everything. I think there's some deep world-building spoilers. Hmm. Cool. In this chapter, it talked about an, an arc being the, like, what do you call it? The greatest terror to ever fall from the heavens. Did you mm. catch that part, Steve? Yeah, I have it tabbed, I think. Yeah, I thought that was kind of peculiar. Um, so I, I wondered if that was, um, if one of these factions arrived from another place. Kind of a whole other, uh, I'm guessing it'll be explained later. But yeah, it was kind of strange. It's... Once you go back and reread it all and read Akamian's dreams, since that's like not even a part of like the current story, that'll all make sense. And there's kind of references hidden in that that you didn't catch. Hmm. I get the feeling there's a lot I didn't catch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think even if you've read only the first trilogy and you go back and reread Darkness or The Warrior Prophet, you will see a lot of Easter eggs and a lot of foreshadowing of things that only make sense to you after you read at least the first three books, um, which is a nice thing to have on a reread. And it's something that I've been noticing um, while we've been reading through the, these two books. Nice. We're almost done with, with book two while we're in the last part now, right? So we're getting, it's exciting. We're getting there. Yeah, I was surprised how quickly it went, actually. Seemed like we just got done with the darkness that comes before, really, to me. It seems fast, but it's been like a few months. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, but it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a lot of fun, so it's, I think it's, it's worked I out mean, really well. Yeah. It's it's true. I do remember the Warrior Prophet being a lot longer than it like it felt a lot longer when I read it the first time than it feels now. I, I guess it's probably because we've broken broken it up into uh, well like six parts. Um, but as, I, I mean, it, it, a lot of things do happen, but somehow I remembered a lot more happens in the Warrior Prophet. But but this one flew by really. So the um, the chapter fourteen starts with uh, Confus asking Martimus, is that his name, to bring uh, Kellis's head and talk about giving someone a cigar and a blindfold. I mean, that's a no-win situation for him. Yeah, it wasn't good. Good thing he had three assassins to help him, and one's a Zuemi sword dancer, I guess. So. And I think he even told Martimus that he didn't trust him enough to let him kill him. He just wants him to bring him his head. Yeah. Yeah. I don't trust you that much. Just, you know, bring me his head. That's as much as I can, can trust you with. And he doesn't even accomplish that. So <laughs> I, I think Confus at this point has concluded that 
Martim is, has become completely useless for him. <laughs> and having him bring him Kallus' head is just a way to punish him or to humiliate him. Um, but I, I feel like Confus has had to uh, accept the fact that Martimus has been lost to him. That he, that he, um, Kallus' man, then he's, he's definitely not Confus' man anymore. Seems like that's been happening to a lot of people. He has, has an influence on people. Uh, just slowly. Um, I did like the, the Holy War that, you know, when the, um, you know, right before battles, how the different factions have their little, they all deal with it differently. They all prepare differently. Some of them yell or sing or just stare into the sky or, you know, they all, it gives that feeling of all these different people coming together for this holy war and kind of puts it in the scale into perspective of how many different people there are for this one goal. Yeah, all the people with like differences of opinion only like bound by their faith, but everything else is basically different. Mm -hmm. And having seven mile long formation of just different races all fighting for one cause, but the Phantom also has that. Mm. We just know less about it. But... Yeah, I mean, the, the Inrithi part of Three Seas, like, it's not a small part of the continent, but it's still just one part of the continent. So imagine there's other places with other nations and races and religions that we haven't even encountered yet hmm. it seems like a big scale but i guess it's just you know because we don't have that the broader perspective yet i'm guessing we will eventually <laughs> eventually <laughs> they both they both shrugged yeah <laughs> so uh um and you know Noir, is it Noir? I always mispronounce his name. I say Nair. Nair. We've been doing this for like months and I still can't pronounce his name right. But uh, thankfully he won't be banging down my door. But um, yeah, he so he trades Surway uh, to teach Kellis the ways of war. What I thought was kind of, I don't know that, I'm wondering if Kellis really wanted him to teach him anything or was he just... It was, was just a way for him to influence and to um, manipulate. I think that Masco War is something that the Dunyan like kind of know nothing about. Later in the chapter, when he talks about like his his version of battle, it's like becoming a tree and conquering all space at once, right? Mm -hmm. So a large-scale battle with all the different like tribes and all their strengths and weaknesses and guessing the enemy. There's just some knowledge Kellis was missing, I think, hmm. that he wanted to leech out of him. But he could have got it other ways. I don't really think that he needed Nair to teach him more. 
Yeah, I think for the for the Dunane, the fact that there are so many unknown variables in a battle, there you there are so many people who are beyond your control. Um, that makes that makes a very difficult situation to predict, or it, it makes it very difficult to anticipate the outcome. Even if you even if you have some understanding of who the people on your side are and how they will behave, you like Kellis still knows very little about the Phantom because he hasn't had uh, he hasn't really had much uh, opportunity to learn about them. So I think there is. I mean, I do agree with you that there is there is something. There are things that that he can learn from Nayor about about war, warfare. But does he? Could could there have been other ways? Possibly. I mean, it it does become even more unclear clear later on why Kellis keeps on insisting to have Nayor around, right? There's there's this moment later on where he's basically decided to uh, kill Neor because he's no longer useless, useless, and then he changes his mind. So I think I think Callus, it's a, his intentions are not one hundred percent clear, and there may be uh, some uh, emotions involved in his uh, in his in his making this decision. What did he say? He's like, what is this, father? Pity. Like he's never felt it before since he was five or something. <laughs> what a weird feeling this is. I feel bad for this person. Emotion, what is this? <laughs> it must be weird for a sociopath to just finally feel one. Or like a real one. Yeah, I was, uh, I was surprised. He, I was hoping he wouldn't kill him. But I was surprised that he decided not to. I think even Callus was surprised. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and Nayor was completely out of it. So because he he had just stabbed Callus. He had already stabbed him once, like just before that. But it wasn't him. It was just a, a shorter Callus. <laughs> well. Yeah, that's um, that's also after, um, the skin spy interrogates quote unquote, Surway, um, and he tells the skin spy tells Surway some interesting things about. Uh... <laughs> so, I don't know if that paid if that was a factor in uh, Nair kind of being ready for it to be over. It seemed like he was prepared for it to to die i mean surway surway does tell Nayor some things that he might not have wanted to hear or or better he probably knew but did not want to admit to himself and i think hearing hearing those truth about himself from her from her lips makes uh it's it's one of it's one of the things that pushes him over the over the the line, um, and leads to his uh, eventual breakdown or madness, whatever you want to describe his current psychological state. 
It's not, but it's not good. It's not, it's, it's not a good place he's in right now. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the, uh, and plus I was surprised that he was, uh, cause he goes back for survey in the encampment. He goes to rescue her and, um, even, you know, at the cost of other people he could have saved or the mother and the child that, that was really neat. Um, that whole sequence was really cool. There was one, um, um, on, uh, 322, if you have this version of the book, but he walks in and says, um, I think he said this before, but it had a, it was like, um, uh, I bury your fathers and your brothers upon my arms. And he says, who will murder me? Uh, I'm the most violent of all men. That was really neat. So, but to see him, to see him go back for Sir Wei, and then it, she tells him those things, I think it kind of, because he starts to feel, he starts to have other feelings for her. So maybe you heard that played a role in it too. I think you, I think you, you asked before about why she was so important to him or why Kellis um, decided to bring her with them. And uh, I, I think in this section, you, you get some answers as to the relationship between the three of them and why, what survey represents for Nayor um, and how uh, Kellis has been able to use that, use her to, to manipulate him. Um, so I, I, I don't, I, did that make things more clearer for you? Yeah, I think it was good to get a different because um, to kind of to him have those thoughts and to uh, to go back for her. It started to kind of flesh out his character for me. It started to make more sense. What did you think about the whole battle, the Battle of the Slopes? That I was a little bit confused about, to be perfectly honest. I was a little bit lost on exactly what it, <clears throat> excuse me, exactly what happened. So I was hoping you, you can help me with that because I was a little bit confused with how those events played out. Do you want to go ahead, Daniel? <laughs> um, well, it had already been talked about how the Enrique are like a slower army. They hold the line better. And the Phantom were like horseback. They could they could break their line and reform, whereas the Enrique couldn't. In the Battle of Mangetta, <clears throat> what happened was they thought they broke the line, so they like rushed them and then the line closed around them. So instead of learning that lesson, he basically did the same exact thing this time. And Scaris made it appear like they were weak and losing and let them like chase till they got too far away from like having a solid line and then enveloped them and made them all run by killing them. So then they swept through the Enrithi. Well, what's it called where all the camp followers are yeah and that's where Nair was like running from them and, and killing a bunch of phantom and i guess 
finds their way and sees magic happen. And then the backup, the backup army that had not came out finally like showed up and pushed back. And since the Phantom had basically did the same thing that the Inrithi did and thought they won, so they like broke line and pushed too deep. When the actual backup army came, it just bewildered them, and then they ran into Scars' camp and took him. Hmm. I, I think Saban brought his head in the end. Of course it's Saban. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this battle, unlike the Battle of Mengera, I think the, the Battle of... Is it... And we're at, yeah, and we're at. It's, it's very messy, and I think it's supposed to be confusing um, because you have two sides that decided for certain strategies that don't really work out in the end because both of them have prepared sort of an ambush for each other. And I think it's all... I, the, I would say it's almost a... Was almost a matter of luck that the Inrithi won. Like it, it wasn't really clear until the very end that they would persist, but they did. Um, they, they had the Scarlet Spires, so in the back of your head, you knew that they were gonna win. Well, we didn't know, so we didn't know that the Scarlet Spires were there with them because the whole time the the Grandmaster, what's uh, what's his name? Eliasaris. Eliasaris. I can't pronounce his name. Eliasaris. Eliasaris. The whole time he's been determined not to send the Scarlet Spires into a battle before they reach Shima. And this time, this time it would have been like either fight or flight, though, and we know how slow their flight is, so he had to come out and actually not have to run. Because they're not good at running. Yeah, and we also later learned that uh, he partially did that to accommodate Proyas, uh, who was uh, threatening him because of the uh, the kidnapping of a commune. Hmm. So I guess yeah, the Inrithi were lucky that the the, the Scarlet Spires were there. And also that Nayor had the uh, the foresight to have the the Shrylanites as a, in in reserve, but it's a it, it was a messy battle. I, I read it twice, and I'm still not in not one hundred percent sure what exactly happened. Okay, good. I think it said before Nayor like left, he tried to signal a retreat, like a reformation. And everyone was like, but we're winning. And trumpeters were like, that guy's crazy. I'm not doing that. So no one trumpeted. <clears throat> no one even signaled the, the retreat. And they just charged and got wrecked. Because Kellis, could, <laughs> he could see further than uh, Nair, just with his eyesight. So he could see exactly what battle was happening. And that, like, seven miles away from them, they were getting destroyed. And it was going to, like have an impact cause the rest of the line to like run so uh, if they would have signaled retreat and they would have retreated back and reformed 
it would have they probably wouldn't even have needed the scarlet spires hmm. i don't know it's 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 unclear i think it's it's just that there were a lot of different factions who managed to overcome eventually what's there was like a combination of many factors that decided the battle it's not that they won because of like one point one single point of strategy and one one army one part of the army i think um it's that uh the shrile knights were there as a backup the kidrahil were able to rescue the anonai um proyas and sobon were, were able to uh uh overcome the what the, the shigeki just a combination of things combined with the Scarlet Spires. Kellis was able to hold the Swazen standard. Whereas they were able to break through and like kill all the drummers and cut the standard down. Yeah, uh, poor camels. Yeah, that was really... <laughs> it was a rough world for uh, animals. It would be scary to have a camel running at you full blast. Horses don't seem as scary to me. It's the elongated know. neck. Something. I don't know. Like a, the heaviness of the upper body with like the weird slender lower body. Horses are kind of like thick throughout. <laughs> but they I have hoops. To the left or right. Yeah. I don't like horses either. <laughs> I've rode them, but... But there's a there was one thing that Callus says to Martemis, I think, when they're up there on the hill defending the, the standard. He tells Martemis after he had this whole lecture from from Neor about war. He he tells Martemis that war is conviction, mm -hmm. which I found interesting. If you compare it to what Confus says in the first book to Martimus, where he tells him that war is intellect. Um, yeah, that's right. I thought it was. I thought it was uh, interesting. I don't know if Kellis would disagree with the statement that war is also intellect, but it's interesting to compare the two and how they might uh, how they might describe different approaches or understanding of what war is. And how you win one. Hmm. That's because I, I read that and I thought I thought it was something different before and I forgot what it was. Uh, so I, yeah, I didn't catch that. So that was a good one. Um, he also tells him this war is your war made honest. Yeah, he tells him that <clears throat> war is just like a an argument and that's why his people call it the great quarrel i think and kellis is the king of arguing so well, it seemed like after he said that it all kind of became clear to kellis and then nair lost his conviction that they were going to win and he fled his own standard and kellis had to stay and show conviction 
Yeah, I, I did wonder for a while why it was so important to him to defend the, the standard. And then I guess I realized that by defending by defending the the standard, he was defending the fact that Neo, like he was defending Neo's strategy, and by defending Neo, he was defending himself, I guess, because he was the one who uh, who put Neo in in that position. So I guess he was also saving his reputation. Hmm. He did another thing he likes too, and he caught a sword with his thumb in his finger. Right. And then he did some voodoo acrobatics to avoid the arrows flying at him. Yeah. Yeah, almost. It's like the original Neo. Yeah. Doesn't have to That's dodge true. bullets, arrows. Yeah, I guess dodging bullets is probably more challenging, but I wouldn't stand a chance against an arrow. That's for sure. And we did, I did start noticing, because I think we talked last week about the quote uh, or the line, death came swirling down. So I started <laughs> to pay more attention to that. I did see it once, too. There um, were a few. I, I didn't yeah. count them this time, but there were a couple. <laughs> and the uh, after one thing that I thought... Um, because after after Surway tells Neor the um, what the what the skin spy told her, and Kellis is contemplating killing him, he tells him, "I love you." He so Neor tells Kellis he loves right. him, right? Mm -hmm. But in that moment. Neor thinks that Kellis is actually Moingus, right? He's talking to Moingus. He knows Kellis isn't Moingus, but he's like screaming at the whole world and screaming at Moingus. Okay. I was, I was wondering about that because it seemed kind of out of the blue, but that makes more sense. I but mean, Kellis, they do Kellis. look very similar, so... Kellis is Moingus. They are the same people, as far as Nair is concerned, I think. I don't think that he even thinks that the Dunyane are people anymore. They're all just kind of like a hive mind. A whole bunch of people trying to go to the shortest path. <laughs> and their blood, so they look exactly alike, except for... Me. I think Moingus had like swazins and now he has no eyes. He had swazins when he left Nair, now he has no eyes. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, but I think, I mean, uh, Kellis is approximately the same age that Moingus was when Nior met him. So. I don't know. I, I just thought, I guess, since he, it, it seemed like he was in this state of, um, I don't know, just some state. It, it's, it, it didn't seem too far-fetched that he would 
he would be having some sort of delusions and mistake uh, Kellis for Moangus. But I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter for for him. They are virtually the one and the same. Hmm. I um, whenever we see the bird, and uh, that always it's always really weird. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's always really weird. There was one, one thing that he tells, the one question, let me, um, find the page really quick. On 341, um, he, um, no, I can't find it. There's a part where he, like, talks about the mandate being <clears throat> an ember of the apocalypse meaning that they're still like out there a flame somewhere and mm -hmm. he says the dunyane might just be one more such group and he's figured out that kellis isn't sishwarim that he is dunyane now though they have no clue what dunyane are still and then he says all games end with me. All games. Because he's the architect. One interesting little detail that I noticed on this, this reread is that apparently it seems that the consul has not only spies among the uh, Enrithi, um, but they also have spies among the non-men. Which yeah. I mean, we we haven't really, apart from the one non-man that that we met in the prologue of of darkness, we haven't really heard anything about them. We don't really, we're not even sure if they're still around. Um, so it's uh, an interesting piece of information to uh, know that the 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 consul is spying on them as well. Hmm. That they Basically. might be so non-man spies. They have no secrets from the mandate because their spies are like that deep in. <clears throat> he like writes off that the Dunyan could be any part of the men or the non-men because they would know. So he has to be like pretty, the mandate have to have deep spies all over. And since no one can see the skin spies really, it makes sense that they are pretty deep. Who knows how long Skin Spies have existed currently? 2,000 years, maybe. Probably not, but maybe. No idea. <laughs> maybe someone in Akamian's dreams could be a Skin Spy. Hmm. Maybe. maybe. But I think, I think also... Maybe I'm wrong, but I do remember Akamian mentioning something about a skin spice being a new invention, using the same the old technology of the of the consult or of the Incroy. But that I think the implication there was that they have not really been seen before in the three C's. But I might be wrong or mis misremembering. 
new to him, which the mandate have been chasing them forever. And I think they last battled it said 300 years before that is when they disappeared. So up to 300 years ago, they might have had a good idea of what they were capable of. But who knows? History's crazy. <laughs> Uh, you both are, your facial expressions always make me laugh. Trying uh, trying oh, try to avoid spoilers, or there was one part that I thought that was weird when the skin spy had taken Kellis's form and was talking to Sarway. Mm-hmm. Sarway still seen like halos on the skin spy, and he was shorter too, right? Yeah. So you knew right. right I mean, you knew right away it wasn't him, but he was in another place too, but. But for her, she still saw, like, the god. She still saw the glowy light coming from him. Well, she she did... But, yes, she thought he was Kellis. So, I I guess I would imagine... If if those halos are just the product of her imagination or her belief in Kellis, maybe it doesn't really matter if it's Kellis or not, as long as she thinks it was Kellis. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> must be must be that the halos are a product of like true true conviction true belief unending belief she seems like she'll do anything Kellis wants even take in SMNet yeah that's a whole other thing uh, <clears throat> but the bird and and the skin spy he um he mentions to him. Um, the, he asks him. He asks him if it threatens the holy war, and he says, "No, not yet. Consult father." Is father someone that we know of yet? Because I couldn't remember who. Or is that someone th- we haven't been introduced to? I think the the bird is the the father, isn't he? Well, He's one the... of the old fathers. He is the old father. The architect. He has he has many names. Yeah. But I think I think the the skin spy sometimes refers to him as as a father or old father or cons- consult father. Um, so I think it was probably just referring to the to him. What did you guys think of the Dunyan Pragma teaching Kellis war? Or teaching Kellis battle, taking them all out and just beating them all with a stick? <laughs> or about nature itself always being at war? I mean, that, that scene just on the face value reminded me a lot of you know just martial arts films where you have the the scene with the sensei teaching the the student to fight that was the wax on wax off moment 
He's, he's a little rougher than uh, Wax on Wax Off, but it reminded me of um, like 300 the, when they were have the kids like, you know, beat the crap out of each other and train. It's kind of what it reminded me of. What about the darker? The darker domain lesson. Neuro. <laughs> neuropuncture. What did you guys think of the neuropuncture part? Um, now that reminded me of films more like the one flew over the cuckoo's nest or, you know, other films for mental institutions. Yeah. Um, that was pretty dark. Well, first of all, they talked about the, the, the defects or the defectives. I don't remember exactly what, what they call them. I think that was right. Which I guess is someone who's not perfect. Who knows yeah. what defective is to Dunyane? It could be like you have the wrong color of eyes. That was yeah. my that was my question. What 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 makes someone defective in the in the eyes of the Dunyane? Just because they're defective also doesn't mean that it's not like people. They have strapped to a girdle with their brains exposed and a bunch of needles in them so they're like feeling horror 24 7 until they die <clears throat> it'd be a fun life i hope i'd be the one that like was smiling all the time at least <laughs> my that, brain that's... was poked to happiness not poked to anguish I would probably prefer a different ending for myself. Um, <laughs> but that was a pretty gruesome scene. And he talks about like the thousand thousand halls and how that's the only like lit up place down a mile deep below Ishwal is a place they just have all these humans strapped to a some kind of machine. It talked about what forty-two muscles and fifty-two different facial expressions, or something like that. And that's how Kellis learned to read people's faces, apparently, just by having people's faces just look like that all the time. Places. Yeah, that was dark. It it does make you wonder what kind of other experiments. Have the Dunian done on people to get to the place where they are now? What's the knowledge to, to get the knowledge they have about how the human body functions or how, how the mind functions? Um, seems like they have a very uh, utilitarian uh, approach to people who are not. Who don't who don't who don't uh, qual who who they don't deem as um, I don't know proper Dunyane or some or people who are just not gifted or don't don't meet certain qualifications to become the real Dunyane. I guess human rights are not really a thing. <laughs> Do they just throw the other little kids over the wall or, or what though? 
probably find some sort of use for them, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Rip oh. open their skull and put a needle in it so they're always happy. Let's hope so. Well, I mean, putting needle in people's skulls to make them happy, it's its not unheard of, even in a more civilized world. Yeah, there's, um, you know, back in the what, 40s or 50s, there was still, um, what is the uh, lobotomy, uh, lobotomy? I mean, that was an accepted form of treatment for people for up until probably, I don't know how long they, how long it really stopped, but it wasn't that long ago. So. Leeches right up till the 1900s. Mm -hmm. Elec electrocution. We just we've just been trying stuff till it sticks. <laughs> Maybe the Dunyan move on to the next uh, phase or next next step of evolution. <laughs> Let's hope so. guess we'll have to see if they've moved forward or backwards through evolution. Seem pretty powerful. But I still think at this point, any single mage could kill Kellis. Nair almost killed Kellis, actually, I forgot. He came within, what, like a centimeter of killing him? Kellis knew it and just let him? I don't know if Nair knew that he almost killed him. I think he even wonders that. I don't think Nero was really aware of anything that was happening around him in in that in that moment. Um, but I mean, I would agree that Kellis is not unbeatable, and he, unless he wears a Corey, he probably would. I mean, as as far as we know, he should. Uh, he, he's not immune against sorcery. And now he's finally like accepted the role of the prophet he's not shooting people away he's like spending time with people acting like the warrior prophet yeah he's been build building a following and uh building a well following in 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 in, diff in different areas i guess yeah, you can see that. Uh, speaking of his following, I think Surway after the after the um, run with the skin spy, she seems to have a different outlook on things, and she's uh, almost encourages Esmanet to become, uh, you know, like intimate with Kellis, and she doesn't. She's like, it's fine. I, you know, I um, it seems like her her whole outlook changes on. A lot of things. So I wonder what else the skin spy told her that we don't know about yet. But maybe just the experience changed the way that she sees things because she seems almost like um, encouraging Espinette to, you know, like it's okay. Well, I don't know that she necessarily remembers hmm. anything about the skin spy. Because overwhelmed her. Yeah, from what I remember, he he basically puts her under under hypnosis, hmm. 
and removes her memories of, of, of that encounter, right? Oh, okay. I missed that part. Yeah. It says that he scratches those pieces of parchment from her oh, soul. That's meaning right. Meaning that yeah. like, she just don't quite remember what happened. Okay. Yeah, I didn't get. I didn't didn't get that it was uh, her memory that he had scratched. So first, he made her made him her tell him everything that he said. He needed all the context of what they wanted to know, and then he erased her memory. Then how did she remember those things to tell uh, Nair? So I think what the things she tells Nayor are things that Kells himself told her mm. while they were traveling or while they were to, together. Um, I don't think that's something that she learned from the skin spy. Okay, I, mis I misunderstood that part then. That was all stuff that Kellis had told her that she believed was true that would hurt Mayor at the time. And then she said it all and it appeared to affect him deeply. And then I think Kellis is like, I told him to come take you because I knew you wouldn't let him. Yeah, I mean, she, like, she basically, she tells him the one thing that he's afraid to uh, admit to himself, the, the like, the, the biggest, biggest secret that he's been trying to uh, keep hidden the whole time, even though everyone's pretty much guessed. But I guess it's 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 even more painful for him, for him to, to hear it from Sir Wei's mouth. Um, but I think the main the main point of the um, the for what would we call like surveys interrogation? <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Um, well, I mean, I had, I know how to describe it, but I don't I don't necessarily want to use the use those words. Um, I think the, the the main point of that encounter was for the skin spy to learn information about Kellis. Mm -hmm. Um because I guess he guessed he guessed rightly that Surway is the weakest link or mm -hmm. the or at least the person most susceptible to reveal information about Kels. And also look one that knows has known Kels for the longest time and probably knows is one of the people who knows most about Kels. Um, so she is a valuable, valuable source of information. Then we had another skin spy. The thing called Sarsalus showed up again. I and thought it was the same one, wasn't it? Probably. It doesn't say exactly. Because at first well, he was Kellis and then... He wasn't injured when he went in Sarsalis, so. Well, I think I, I, the reason why I assumed it was the same one is because the Kellis and Skin Spy gets stabbed in the chest, and then I think there's a mention of Sarsalis being wounded or, or having to having to take some time to heal. Yeah, um, he tells the bird that he's been uh, wounded, but he has he needs to heal or something like that. 
Oh yeah, so it must be the same one. You're right. Which I think would also explain why the height doesn't match. If he's still like Sarcellus's height, but he's just wearing Kellis's face, it would make sense that there would be a. Uh... Maybe he didn't have time to grow up to Kellis's height. I don't know. I don't really know how the skin spying works. Like, I don't, do they have just one body and, and they only change their faces or do their bodies change as well? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Yep, I don't. Who knows? I wonder if that was a, a thing just for the reader to know that that wasn't him because she mentions that he seems shorter. So I thought if, it, if they are one one height and that'd be kind of difficult to spy too much because i mean so i, I wonder if that was just as a like a this isn't callous but you know, do as you the reader i feel like i would have been able to tell regardless because he was acting unlike callous and i already knew where callous was he was up yeah. with so i think that was just to show that the the skin spies aren't like a perfect representation of who they take. They're just like a close representation. Go back and read about Skios and the darkness that comes before. Just reread <laughs> darkness. Yeah. Yeah. When it describes Skios, there's things that are off about him, but not enough for anyone to know anything the whole time. Hmm. I did, um, <laughs> when, uh, Sir Wade comes back to Kellis and, sh and, um, Kellis tells her that he traded her, um, and then Sir Wade asks, Sir Wade asks him something like why, and he says, because I knew you wouldn't let him. <laughs> Poor Sir Wade. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if that was a compliment or if that, or like, I, I, I wonder if, if that's something that Kellis actually anticipated or if it's just, if that was just a reaction to an outcome and if, 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 uh, if Nayor was able to, uh, was able to take survey with him, I wonder how Kellis would, would have reacted. Um, but yeah, it's either way. It's 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 pretty bad. <laughs> pretty brutal. And Esmenet and Surway become besties for a while there. Well, <laughs> it's. I feel like Esmenet has a very uh, ambivalent feelings about. Uh, about uh, Surway. Hmm. There seems to be a, a lot of jealousy between the two of them. And friendship. Seems like a real girl relationship. But real girl relationships that I've seen. <laughs> yeah, maybe S some girls. Esmnet learns how to read and Kellis gives her salvation. Is that 
what we'll call it, when he scratches the hmm. prostitutes are cursed words from the book. And now she's, yeah. she knows how to read. He told her that she was like the whole debating whether she was equal to men or not equal to men or what is like are men equal to each other that whole little argument was good i think smnet grew and made a lot of decisions from that also there was like the hearth talk earlier when they went to her fire and they're like what makes what makes the hearth is it the fire or the family and that's how they got her to even come with them in the first place, because they're the family. Akamian knows that. Yeah, that uh, that little section there, it's uh, 384 in this, in this edition, but um, uh, is it lawful for men to purchase pleasure from a woman? She says, no, so why do they? They can't help themselves. They're men. So they have no control. They have no control over their desire. And uh, witness the well-fed harlot sitting before you. So why do men herd cattle? Well, to slaughter. Uh, there's um, uh, men. <clears throat> excuse me. Men cannot dominate their hunger, so they dominate, domesticate the objects of their hunger. Be it cattle or women. Yeah, that was a pretty, uh, it's a pretty powerful section. Um, and part of me, re like, part of me enjoys the fact that Callus uh, helps Esmanet feel more empowered and more equal to the men, to the men of, of her world. But at the same time, like, you know, he only says it to manipulate her and to control her. So what good is it really? That's like all the truths in this book. This book has a lot of good quotes and good lines, but like had had the lesson needed to be something else, Kellis would have turned the words around to equal truths that were opposite lessons. Yeah, I also I also maybe have a little bit little bit of a problem with him saying that men are just mindless animals who are not able to that are not able to control their their lust uh, or desire. I, I, I like. Do you actually agree with that statement? I think like he it, said that we're split in two. That. Like everyone's got like that animal part of them and then they have their intellectual parts. And then I think the, the section ends with him saying that Essenet uh, had already given her animal side to him. Mm. Or no, she'd already given her intellectual. Or no, she had already given up on Akamian, her animal side, because she was desiring Kellis. 
So it's like a juxtaposition of desire and intellect. And if you're smart enough to recognize your desires and control them. But Kellis is smarter in order to make you chase whatever desire he wants you to have. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, I wondered about this and I think I'm not sure if it's if Baker is talking about men in general or men in this world because the men in this world seem it's a very dark and hopeless place for um, women especially and camels and horses and animals <laughs> but but I, I was wondering if it was a um if it was in reference to the to this world that he's creating or if it's if there's more to it than that I mean, I, I don't, I don't really have an answer. It's, it's, it's a question I, I'm, I'm asking myself. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I would agree with you that that there are certain stereotypes that seem more exaggerated in the world of the three C's compared to uh, our world, which may be just to make to drive the point home. Maybe the point that he wants to say about our world, but I don't know. I think since this is kind of a representation of the Crusades, it's more of the people of the times. I was listening to some guy talk about like how we glorify Vikings when really they're just like literal robber rapists that just ride around on a boat and robbed and raped everything. That was like all they did. Literally the only thing a pirate did. So the fact that we like raise them up on a pedestal and everyone like wants to like romanticize being a pirate when what they did was just like pure evil. And then the Crusades were like the Christians being pirates in a sense. So I think like it speaks more of the time than of our current time where yeah. we all know how to read and we all know how to write and we're nuanced. I forget. I think it was, I think it was Anna Smith spark who I asked her about this and she said um, that this is a, almost like a warning for what it can become too. So if it's, you know, if, this is a warning for what could happen if we don't keep these these things in check because it has happened before and it can happen again so and when i think of books like the road or other like dystopian books like, they go back there we devolve into horrible less intellectual more animalistic mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there there may be something to say about the fact that women or even other minorities are sometimes, if not often, forced to na navigate a world where the rules are, de are defined by men um, or by other people in power. Um, 
and yeah maybe that's maybe maybe today we don't uh we don't uh prohibit women from you don't prohibit women to read um but there's still certain social stigmas or or stereotypes that women th- themselves embrace and sometimes even support that are or could be considered anti-women or preventing women from having more control over their lives so i, I mean i do see some truth that I just sometimes i sometimes wonder if it's maybe the depiction are too extreme mm. of either men or women but there's still a lot to talk about and you can still draw a lot of parallels to our world for mm. sure And there are some places in the world right now today that, you know, like in Iran, what was a week or two ago that you know, that woman was killed for not wearing clothing the way they wanted to wear it. I mean, it's it's still you know, there's a lot of a lot of awful things still happen to uh, certain types of people. So it is very interesting, though, um, to to take apart. I think it's been cool to watch. Smnet's growth and just her empowerment that she's seemingly gaining. She's still weak like everyone in this book. Seems to be weak at points, but she's been through a lot and she seems to be evolving. She seems to be like equal to man and kind of feels bad for Surway for being so just ignorant and kid-like and beautiful i guess so there was something that when callus was talking to espinette and she was uh thinking back on her daughter did she let her daughter starve to death is that because that's kind of what or was that because the way that i took it was either she let the daughter starve to death or she saw her as an inconvenience and just didn't care for her or did I miss what happened there? Cause I was, there was a couple of lines in there where she said it would, you know, um, cause her, her father didn't want, didn't care about anything. Right. Didn't care about her or the, the daughter, her daughter. So I was, cause I took that as that was guilt as much as it was her missing her daughter for what she did to her daughter <laughs> or did I, or am I way off? I think during this, she's like reflecting on what her dad did to her. And it says that like everyone who lives here needs to learn how to like provide. So he Mm -hmm. sold his little daughter to his friends or something at like 11. And she was thinking about how she had sold her own daughter at a young age. And it talked about how the money she had got for selling her daughter lasted a week. So Mamara didn't die. She just sold for enough money for Esmnet to get by for a week because I guess there was like a big famine. It said something horrible and I'm not going to say that made it seem like the famine was the worst thing ever though. Whereas Esmet didn't have anything to eat. I feel like they were talking about people like eating bark and grub worms. I I do, I get, I mean, this is like, this is a really important moment for Esmet's character. 
and something that we've heard her talk about before. But every time, every time I think she mentioned her daughter before, she she, she thinks of her. She, she thought of her as being dead. Um, and so in in this chapter, we learn that. Well, first of all, Esmond's an unreliable narrator because her her daughter, at least from what we know, is not dead, or at least what was not dead when Esmond said goodbye to her, because what happened, as you said, there was a famine in 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 Sumna, and she uh, she sold her daughter because she didn't have any anything else or any other way to to make money and to get food. Um, but the guilt and the idea that she she did this to her daughters was so traumatizing for her that she just eventually decided to think of her daughter as being dead. I guess because it was more bearable for her to think of, think of her that way. And um, but she still feels an enormous guilt because I mean she obviously knows what happened to Maimara and. I guess in some way she she did the same thing to her daughter that his her father did to her. Um, in which her would, way. Yeah, it's true. But I guess it's you know it's it's even more painful if that's something that happened to you and then you did you do it to to someone who you care about. Um, but like so. her father, she learned the lesson that sometimes you can't feed all the mouse. Mm. So she could have died and her daughter could have died or she could give her daughter away and just think of her as dead and survive. Or she could have just hoped that her daughter thrived somewhere. I guess she assumed that she's dead to her because she's never coming back. So she might as well be dead in her stories. Hmm. Yeah, I but know. I think it'd be a shitty thing to actually deal with. Everyone's positions in these books are real crappy to like try to empathize with. You put yourself in their shoes, it's some bad shoes to be in. Mm. Yeah, but I think this is probably one, like, this is the deepest secret that she, that Esmond has, worth, the worst thing she probably ever did in her life. So the fact that it's something that she shared with Kellis, it tells us about how, uh, completely he's uh she's in his she's in his grasp now um yeah like she's she's his she's told him everything he has complete well not complete control over her but there's i don't think there's much more that she can bear to him anymore she's completely opened up to him 
And all these other men with um, Espinet try to physically, um, I'll say, they try to control her physically, but it wasn't until Kellis, she emotionally, he, you know, was able to um, use those emotional, you know, get into her skin and get her, get her, his, you know, understand her better so he can manipulate her instead of it being a, like a brute force thing that everyone else seems to try with her that, of course, never worked. Not even a Camian, it says. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the fact that he he decides to teach her how to read is also a very important part of that process of, of, of mastering her. Um, because it, I mean, it's first, it's something that not even a Kamian ever did for her, even though it's something like, it's, it's very obvious that that's something she, she wants to know. She, she wants to learn, but a Kamian, a Kamian never bothered to, to actually teach her, even though he's, you know, supposedly the teacher of all the characters that, that we know. Um, yeah. So the fact that Kellis takes the time and the patience to teach her to do this for her is, is very meaningful to her character because it's it shows her he, he values equally as, equally as, as the, the, the men that he usually hangs around with. What do you guys think about the pickle Proius is in now? <laughs> the letter from Ethanet. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I want to feel bad for Proius, but I usually don't. He's, <laughs> like, I don't know, like, He's he's like he's a really diff he's a really difficult character for me to uh, to empathize with. Um, maybe maybe that has to do with the fact that I'm not religious, so it's 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 difficult to for me to imagine that religion plays such an important role in someone's life, and that informs most of his decisions. Um, so that's hard, and he's. He's just too like, he's too like. I don't know. He's a he's a good guy, arguably, but he's just so he's just so narrow-minded. It's it's painful. It, it talks about the lesson with Akamian, where Akamian like tried to show him the value of doubt. He says like, go look at all these people for a week and. Look at the people who doubt and look at the people who are certain and it's the, the wise people who are the ones doubting their decisions and other people and it's all the gung-ho idiots that have no doubt but he still refused to learn the lesson and he reflects on how Akamian knew that that was going to get him in trouble by basically saying the tusk was probably a lie he didn't say it was a lie he just insinuated that everything's got some lies in it and 
at the time, Proteus didn't know that that was going to get Akamian kicked out, but he realizes Akamian knew the whole time, and he thought that doubt was an important enough lesson to, like, lose a student over. Yes, it, it's not a lesson that Proyas has seems to have learned. Uh, <laughs> the, even with the even with the Kamian, he's like first first he's like, well, certainly a Kamian is a sorcerer, so I must uh, expel him because that's the pious thing to do. And then he reads the letter from Mathenet and he thinks, oh, actually, the whole time accepting Kamian was the pious thing to do. So of course I must do that now. Or, I mean, I would try to do it if, if the common wasn't dead, allegedly. Um, it's just, there's there's no in-between for Proyas. And I know it's, it's, it's interesting, in some way, he is, like, one of the most moral characters in the story. But then it doesn't necessarily lead him to make the right decisions or, or the most compassionate decisions. Um... But at least, I mean, at least, like he does. At least he does feel some remorse, or he, he, I mean, there is some part of him that questions the things he does and the the compromises that he he has made. But in the end, it it, it avails to nothing. So, what what's what's the point? Even if even if he's a good guy, it doesn't really matter in the end, right? I love that out of, out of all the characters in this book, out of all the characters in the series, Proyas is like the one that really gets you like heated. <laughs> well, Proyas and Sabon. I I hate Sabon. I hate Sabon more. <laughs> Sabon's the worst. I can't wait till we get to the very end to see what you think of all of these characters. I know what I think of Sabon. <laughs> <laughs> but um no Perez is a complicated guy I, I I will acknowledge that he's but he's frustrating he's frustrating to read he's he's so he's so stubborn oh and we got one little brief bit of Akamian talking to the scarlet spires yeah poor Camion. you should have stayed at the camp we're safe that's what happens when you like books too much yes let that be a warning to you both <laughs> yeah order off amazon don't ever yeah. go to barnes and noble that's yeah. the, that's the last place with a bunch of books together <laughs> library, I guess. Yeah. Avoid libraries at any cost. Yeah, in a black Akamian. I really felt bad for Akamian during the whole sequence. He's, you know, soiling himself, and uh, it's just not a good, not a good spot to be in. But uh, we do know that he survives for at least a little bit longer because he wrote some of the, uh, you know, beginning of a chapter, the little quotes, and so we know that he's probably going to survive a I was wondering if you're going to catch him talking about the the battle outside of Anubrit 
the Battle of the Slopes. Mm -hmm. Oh, so. did he? I didn't. I didn't catch that. Yeah, so he'll probably be okay for a little bit longer. But he's not in an enviable position at the moment. No. They got me chained above some kind of circle that makes magic painful, I guess. Yeah. And he still said something, whether it was just not have to deal with a Lazarus anymore or what, who knows. He knows he's going to die, it seems like, or he's pretty much assured that he's going to die. Yeah, the, the Scarlet Spires also think he's going to die. Um, there was there was a little little short paragraph where I think it's a comment explaining the difference between the uh, the sorcery that uh, the mandate uses and the uh, the Anagoga sorcer sorcery of the of the Scarlet Spires, which honestly doesn't make it a lot a lot more clearer for me at all. It pretty much says that all the other schools have to, like, use rudimentary, like, things to get them to, like, if they want to burn someone, they got to, like, make a dragon head go burn someone. Whereas the mandate somehow have the ability to just create burning instead of, like, mm -hmm. the, having the effects of it. And then he says basically that the mandate are philosophers and the other schools are poets, meaning that they just possess a much greater use of the language as opposed to just a little flattery of language like all the other schools have. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting uh, com comparison or analogy. But, like, the way I would understand it would be that... I, I guess philosophers attempt to describe the world in a very, like, precise terms, while poets so, sort of dance around things and allude to things and uh, try to relate things to the reader through like images or symbols whereas i guess philosopher would try to get straight to the the essence of the thing um but i'm not sure it, that that metaphor really helps me to understand the sorcery but i guess it's supposed to be like a more of a soft magic system we 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 don't we haven't really learned much beyond much beyond this uh so far i think Nope. <laughs> we haven't. We, we know that they make a lot of... Uh, they definitely can make fire, the sorceress. Um, it seems to be their preferred uh, way of annihilating people on the battlefields. <laughs> um, we've also seen a lot of fire camps, uh, campfires, uh, Lit up by a spell, but I don't. I, I I'm not sure if we've seen many uh, non-fiery 
magic things. Yeah. Hmm. The best description I've seen is like a Canadian saying that a prophet speaks the words of gods and a wizard like mocks the words of gods. They both can speak the language that God used to create the world. Or no, a prophet like hears God's words to give to people and a wizard or a mage like speaks the language God used to create, but they mumble it so it only destroys. And it's all fractured. The Mandate know a certain little chunk. The Scarlet Spires know a certain little chunk. The Sishoran know a certain little chunk. But nobody yet has all the chunks. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me that you could have all the chunks. <laughs> or attempt to attempt to have all the tongues anything's possible if there's a walking whirlwind that causes the apocalypse then anything's possible i'm glad i'm reading this with you with, with both of you because there's so much stuff that i miss or <laughs> just don't catch so Uh, do you guys have anything else on your notes that we didn't talk about? I'm actually sure I do, but it was a lot. Oh, the part where the part where Nair is teaching Kellis War, and he like talks about how all men are bound to one another, some by chains, some by ropes, some by strings, all of different lengths. They call these bindings the Fury, the ligaments of war. Hmm. And each ligament has a different flexibility, just the way that Nair described war was really interesting. And he told him that there's like the moment you have to seize and then Kellis is like I think that moment's already passed <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the funnier moments in the few chapters and then the part that talked about the tree warring how nature like is constantly at war but unlike humans nature only beats Nature's heart only beats one once per year, I think it said, which is really interesting. That's like why the tree grows in all ways at once, because it's like warring in all ways at once, whereas we have so many beats between, we can war one direction. Mm -hmm. It was just really interesting. And I live in, I live in nature, so I can see nature at war when I go out. <laughs> Trees bent sideways trying to catch the sun. Trees growing out of rock, so the roots just are in precarious positions. Nothing here has water. It's a constant war. 
Yeah, most I mostly see trees battling concrete in the place where I live. <laughs> battling concrete. <laughs> trees win. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen the broken concrete. Hmm. For sure. Like one of my other one of other little funny scenes um was the one where Confus comes to find Martimus after the whole battle's finished. And he's sitting there on the hill with a Swazan standard. And Confus comes and he hacks down the, 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 the pole. And then Martimus is like, well, Confus is not dead. And uh, Callus is not dead. And Confus is like, oh, really? Pity, <laughs> since I sent you to collect his head before the battle. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people say that these books have like no humor in them, but there's lots of, well, not lots, but there's some humor in them, except a very dry, droll humor, situational. Yeah, there are there are definitely some funny moments. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they're just so absurd to the point that they're funny. Okay. Um, but, uh, Callus throws in a joke here and then. Um, yeah, he gets people laughing. And with Callus, it's, you know, I think both of you have said during this whole journey is that he, everything's for a reason and he's, um, so you never know if when, I don't know if he's ever being sincere. It's always a, ends for a goal. You know, it's never just always a purpose for everything i think a good rule of a thumb is that he's never being sincere yeah when he's talking to someone who he can't dominate is when he's the most truthful probably so when he's talking in air he can be less deceptive he has to be more truthful because nair's i think he says he's like the only person who how did he put it Nair's the only person that sees as far as the Dunyan now, somehow. Um, on page uh, 379, Waraju, um, he starts to think that Waraju sees him, or, you know, Kala starts to think he's catching on to him. He cracks a joke about... Um, he says, uh, what is it that I see? This is pride. You see pride master. And he, and he says, not with that face. <laughs> and everybody laughs. Yeah, because he felt embarrassed by the answer he had to give. Yeah. He was too prideful. So there are those moments now and then. Now and then. Yeah. Humor is like good books really subjective it's just all about how you feel about it some people like the dark humor some people just don't <laughs> yeah, I also feel like a lot of the humor is not it's not obvious it's not immediately obvious like sometimes you have to 
like it's like he doesn't necessarily tell you that this is a funny scene that you're supposed to laugh at what's happening. It's like you kind of have to figure it out for yourself mm -hmm. from the context or from like what the people are, or, or, or how they're reacting to something that someone else says. Um, there have definitely been moments where I read a scene and did not realize that someone cracked a joke until I reread it. Yeah. Or maybe it's just maybe it's just humor that you know doesn't come to me naturally. Oh, and there's a part where Nair was talking about like not being of the people, and he says that if war was worship, that he would be the most pious Slivendi. The greatest among the people, not of the people, is going to be more than the people. Because if murder was like worship, then he was going to just be the biggest murderer. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's 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 still not enough. Because he's still pretending. He's still not one hundred percent convinced that the skill bendy way is the right way and uh and they can smell it on him and that's why they keep mocking him and disrespecting him but yeah, yeah i mean the, the whole the whole section the whole part where uh Kella's dissect essentially dissects Nagor's character it's um it's one of my favorite parts it's like, it gives it gives you uh, it gives you a really good perspective on why Naor has been acting the way he's he's acted and why he makes why he treats her way and the others the way he does and it just it underlines the 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 tragedy of his character which um that's i mean it's 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 sad. it's fascinating and it's sad it's it's really sad to read yeah, and it doesn't. belongs to like nobody. He's not of this people or that people or any people. Yep. No, Saban, no. <laughs> I'm going to start working a new angle and just try to make Katarina like Saban now. It might be hard. I'm going to try. He has like one, two wars, kind of though. He's been the end factor in two wars. I'll give him a little credit. I, I guess he's persistent, but he's not—he's not the the sharpest tool in the box. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> it's true. You can argue with that. You guys uh, have anything else? Lots of stuff. These uh, just a few chapters. Lots of stuff happens. Yep. And next week, I think we're going into the desert, which I'm very excited about. As hmm. someone who, yeah, where they like professed love deserts. It said that all the 
all the wells have been poisoned now and they're kind of forced to walk along the hills and they're carrying water forever and they got ships carrying water for them now too. The Empress ships. Hmm. Which... Because um, the Emperor has been such a reliable ally so far. I thought you were a fan of the Emperor. Oh, I am. <laughs> He's very reliable to himself. Yeah. Everyone in this book is very reliable to themselves. I, I'm definitely a fan of Sirius, but objectively speaking, um, he's not been the greatest help for the Holy War. But that's Sabon. Objectively speaking, Sabon's done and good for the Holy War, of course. <laughs> for Sabon. Uh, you know. <laughs> but you know, just on just a uh, personal level, no, <laughs> not not a fan of Sabon. So uh, I have I I did someone post on the forum that they are reading along with us. So that's pretty cool. That's people are reading along. That's really neat. Um, so if you are one of those people reading along. Uh, next week, we'll discuss chapters 18 through 21. That's about 100 pages or so. There's, a, there's 200 pages left. So within the next couple of weeks, we'll finish up this one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Things yeah, are Things are going to get exciting. I have no doubt. There's already been a lot more that's happened in this book than the last book. If you're not it, counting political intrigue, there's been two battles, probably a thousand miles marched. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It, it, I, for some reason, I, I do feel like a lot more happened in the darkness that comes before than in this book. But... Yeah, when you start listing things that have already happened in the Warrior Prophet, it's a lot. Um, I don't know. It's this the, book... the little intricate details that the darkness that comes before is filled with. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is like the march of the Holy War. Less intricate details. More characters all connected like in proximity to each other. Whereas the first one was people coming together and all the intricate details <laughs> so it was, it was fun to read they've both been fun to read so far so which is your favorite book in the trilogy because you've both read it once which is your favorite for me i would still say it's the darkness that comes before um i think I mean, part of it has to do with the fact, as, as we talked about, that it is it is dense. There's a lot to unpack, and you can read it again and again. There's still more you can uncover. Um, but also, I'm I'm a big fan of the, the little details and the the intrigue and the politics. Um, so, and I think of, of the three, in terms of politics, there is the, 
the 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 warrior prophet and and thousandfold thought are are not as politics heavy there's more they're more about like the battles and yeah most mostly the battles some intrigue but most of the politics takes place in the first book and that's uh that's that's what i enjoy usually and not just this series but other series as well i probably think the third book's the best but i mm. guess we'll see when we get there if i remember right i think it'll have more more of the finer details and intrigue than Katarina remembered. Where this is more action heavy, this book we're reading, the next book is action heavy, but it's the ending of a series, so. There are certainly a lot of resolutions to the things that we've been building up to. And I think those resolutions are fun. Most people say this book is their favorite book, though, I feel like, of the series. Yeah, the one we're I, reading now. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, that it's most people's favorite book, because it is... Is it fast-paced? I don't know if I would agree that it's fast-paced, but there's a lot of <laughs> action. Yeah. There's more action, for sure, so if that's something that you enjoy, um, I, I can see why a lot of people would like that. Um, I'm not one of those people. Um, sometimes I just skip the action scenes. You're not alone. This There's battle was there. really interesting because the two battles we've had before, really, they had like some first person perspectives of people that are like in the charge and on the line. And this one was just like them on a hill looking at dust. Like, oh, why is that dust there? Oh, why is that army not moving forward? And it was like more of the big host, just to show, I think, the broad scale of the war. You can't really see how epic it is if if Nair's just down leading one little battalion or something. Mm -hmm. Whereas from far away, thinking of like a seven-mile line of humans lined up with another seven-mile long line of humans, that's gross especially from the back of the line it's no good it's true yeah. well higher chance of, of survival though in the back line maybe yeah maybe both of these guys have the their whole back of the line get washed away at one point they were running through the encampments of both sides this was just a pretty wild battle for yeah, Scars. I, I did enjoy this battle more than the first one. Um, probably because it was a lot more messy, which I think makes it more fun, more interesting. Um, but also the, the fact that you get this like bird's eye view sections interlaid with the more like personal stories like with survey and with Nayor and how they or and then Kellis and how they're experiencing the battle um that was a really nice contrast and i think it made it a lot more dynamic 
and just watching Sabon destroy one horse after another. Yeah, those horses. It's that conviction you talk about. He's convicted enough to go through all those horses. He fi yeah, I guess Sabon figured it out. He's you just have to be uh, enough of a believer. That's that's enough to win a war. Let's start hashtag Sabon was right. I'm just like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. It's always uh, I learn so much every week that I missed because I'm not the not the sharpest tool in the shed, like Katarina said. It really helps me out to, uh, to follow along and find all the stuff I missed and just didn't understand. Like the battle, I was a little lost on. So it makes more sense now. Cool. Uh, so, Daniel, where can people find you or do you not want to be found? <laughs> eh, I don't care. Okay. Search, search hard enough, you'll find me or just give up. Uh, Katarina, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on the page twing forum. You can approach me there. And I'm also on Instagram at the errand. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone who's been listening. Um, this is a packed few chapters. So thanks for hanging out with us and listening to us and listening to me try and understand what's going on. So we will uh, catch everyone next week. Thanks again for, uh, for listening.